Love is the animating force of the universe, and compassion is what we're here to embody. That's been a really consoling mantra to have in the back of the mind during, you know, an age when that's the opposite of what we hear most of the time. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Tracy K. Smith is the U.S. Poet Laureate. She wonders what it would take to love others in a truly generous way. In her upcoming book, Wade in the Water, she looks back at moments in history where we, the human race, failed to choose compassion. In today's episode, she reads some of her new poetry and older works that examine death, the afterlife, nature, and African-American history. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events held by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from Winter Words, an event held in Aspen, Colorado by Aspen Words. Aspen Words is a program of the Aspen Institute. In all of her work, Tracy K. Smith says there's a theme. She calls it a susceptibility to the mysterious. That's certainly true in her Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Life on Mars. In it, she reflects on the death of her father, who was one of the engineers who worked on the Hubble Space Telescope. New York Times book reviewer Joel Brower writes, quote, Outer space serves as a metaphor for the unknowable zone into which Smith's father vanished, and as a way of expressing the hope that his existence hasn't ceased, but changed. Smith says her true self comes out in her work. Poetry helps her wrestle with darker questions and unresolvable complications. She also believes thoughtful and courageous language can help us turn inward and listen better to ourselves. Here's Tracy K. Smith. Um, I'm delighted to be here. It's been a lovely few days in Aspen. I hope um, not my only visit to this wonderful place. Um, On the ride over here, I discovered that uh, Jamie, I don't know where she's sitting, uh, grew up in Northern California where I also grew up and that we went to the same camp, which happens to be called Camp Whiskey Town. Um, And I've written a little bit about that experience in my memoir. Um, And so I thought it might be nice to start with that. It also, looking over these um, pages tonight, I realize this is kind of an origin story in a way. This was my, um, if in some ways my work is death-obsessed or interested in that other side, this might be one of the reasons for that. Um, And I'll just start out by saying the memoir... Um, is a book that's thinking about my experience of family and my mother in particular, whom I lost when I was 22. It's also a book that has a lot to do with interrogating the sense of faith that I grew up with and and finding a a place of synthesis between what my mother um, believed and what made sense to me um, in my own vocabulary. There's a little bit of that tension even in this early chapter. Our campground sat at the center of more wide-open space than I'd ever seen before, all of it framed by forests of oak and pines. Each morning, the whole group of us played soccer and Red Rover in a field. Thick fog hovered out across the horizon while the sun was still low. 
There were gophers popping up from their tunnels and beavers swimming in the river, their oily wet fur glistening in the sun. As the day progressed to a cloudless, clear blue, small groups of us were led on hikes up and down mountain trails. At our guide's instruction, we tasted wild green onions. They grew in bunches and were just as thin as blades of grass, only taller. We crossed running streams, stepping rock to rock. I was frightened to near paralysis by things like walking across logs or climbing down steep, muddy grades and fell into step in the rear of the pack, hoping to amass the courage while my classmates ahead of me made their way. More than once, my apprehension caused our guide to have to backtrack and help me over whatever small hurdle had gotten the better of me. It was a humiliation, but its sting was still less than the fear I felt at nearly every turn. When my feet got wet and I spent a good part of the day uncomfortably cold, I tried to remind myself that it was nothing short of a miracle that I was there in the first place, nothing shy of an act of God to have been allowed to throw my sleeping bag in with the rest of my class and ride off into a week of more or less self-supervision. Were my parents worried about me up there on my own? Two days before our time at Whiskey Town was over, our four teachers and the camp director stood before us in the cafeteria. It was dark out and the fire was crackling, reinvigorating the wood smoke smell. Oh, I have to back up and say this was a class trip and um, I was too shy to shower in the communal showers so I thought I would save up all my showers for when I got home. So this is what, this is what you're gonna hear. Like, reinvigorating the wood smoke smell that had seeped into the molecules of my hair, clothes, and unwashed skin. We have a very serious announcement to make, Mr. Samuels said. He was bearded with ruddy cheeks and a round face, which he just then was keeping perfectly free of expression. You may already have heard some rumors, but we wanted to be the ones to tell you that one of your classmates, Kenny Moffat died this morning. Mr. Samuels paused a moment to give our gasps and murmurs time to sound out, though for the most part, the room remained silent. My thoughts froze and sped up at the same time. Kenny, the boy I sat beside every day in class, bickering with and making mischief, the boy with the dirty fingernails and the freckle-spattered face, I'd barely seen him since we arrived. It was almost as though I'd expected him still to be sitting there in the darkened classroom, waiting beside my empty desk, though of course class with its chalkboards and corkboards and windows looking out onto the harbor of our schoolyard now seemed a million miles away. I didn't know what to think or do, so I sat there willing my ears to listen. Kenny had a mild heart condition, Mr. Samuels continued. He said it like this was knowledge he had had for a long time. He suffered a heart attack this morning while he and a classmate were out jogging. I could gather who the classmate had been. Ellis, the kid who resembled Andrew Jackson, was Kenny's best friend. 
The two of them were funny together, working up little comic bits worthy of the Marx Brothers or Bob Hope and Bing Crosby, whom they had studied enough to imitate with a fair degree of accuracy, at least for nine-year-olds. I liked those movies, too, for what it was worth. My brother Conrad and I sometimes watched them together on TV when he visited for the weekend. Both Kenny and Ellis had older parents, gray-haired mothers with wrinkles like grandmothers and old man fathers who we rarely saw, which might have explained why both boys had such an affinity for black and white movies. Whenever Kenny and Ellis performed one of their funny back and forths, and just as everyone else's laughter was dying down, one boy would ask the other who wrote his material. The answer, no matter the no matter the joke, was always Bob Hope. And every time it caused the two of them to grin with a private kind of pride. Mr. Samuels went on to explain that the accident hadn't been anybody's fault and that Kenny probably hadn't felt a lot in those final moments. He and the other teachers stood together looking out onto what must have seemed just then like a sea of the youngest, most vulnerable faces in the world. The teachers asked if any of us had questions. They encouraged us to talk about our feelings, to get things out in the open, so that nobody had to feel alone in sorting through a classmate's death. I didn't ask anything, and I didn't cry the way some of the other campers were beginning to. For a moment, I thought that I should, that it would be the decent thing for Kenny's class partner to do, but I couldn't manage it. I felt a strange detachment from myself, unable to feel what such a thing was supposed to feel like. Reality raced back at me. Hadn't Kenny sat next to me less than a week ago? Hadn't we just argued about a broken pencil and about the mess of papers threatening to spill out from his desk? How could he have been in the seat beside me one day, smelling like peanut butter or now and laters, and then simply be gone, disappeared, a world away. I wasn't crying, but I felt for the first time that underneath our show of not liking one another, Kenny and I had actually been friends, and it hurt. Where did death take Kenny? Did he believe, as I did, in God and heaven, or would death have carried him out of obligation somewhere else? What had it felt like just before he was gone? Did he feel it coming? Had he called out for his mother? What would I do if I knew I was about to be gone? Would I see Jesus there waiting for me just across a stream, like the Baptist hymns say? Or would everything have gone dark? And what about the blaze of warm white light people talked about? People like the man and woman I'd once seen on the episode of the Phil Donahue show about near-death experiences. I didn't let myself think about Kenny's body lying lifeless in the grass or how it would be transported home to his parents. I didn't think about whether his desk would still be there beside mine, only empty, when we returned to school. Something that wasn't any of those things sat upon my mind, making it heavy and dull, sleepy and slow. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to the ride home. Watching the landscape revert to the familiar as we traveled back to Fairfield with one less child in tow, the voice in my mind muttered to itself, at least I was there. 
It was a variation of the mantra with which I'd once heralded the new year, here I am. At least I wouldn't be in quite the same position on Monday as the one or two kids who had opted out of camp altogether, deciding instead to spend the week at home. How was Vodka Village, my sister Wanda asked (laughs) when I walked through our front door. Oh, it was fine, I managed, rushing past her to the bathroom. That night, a lot of it came back to me, the wide, grassy field surrounded by oaks and pines, and how, once you stepped foot into the forest, it rang with a startling, living presence. The gophers and mountain beavers, the enormous bald eagles and flocks of honking geese, the the rushing water of the creeks. I told my family about how challenging it had been to do some things, like crossing streams, by walking across a path of stones or a log balanced between one side and the other. But in the end, I'd done what had been asked of me and had been safe. None of the little feats of daring I'd been put up to in the woods had brought me to any harm. When I told my family about Kenny, it was clear from their faces that they already knew. It helped take my mind off the terrible realness of his dying by imagining that he'd probably been happy when he died, completely unconcerned, just running around in the tall grass with his friend. It helped, too, to decide that he must finally know, if he hadn't known before, how alike the two of us really were. I liked what the survivors of near-death experiences, at least the ones I'd seen that time on TV, had to say. That there was a tremendous light, warm and incomprehensibly bright, calling to them without words. And that they had raced out of their bodies and down a dark tunnel without fear, eager to be absorbed by the light that summoned. The light was alive, they'd said and it put their minds or their hearts, whatever was left of them, at peace. The ones who had gotten closest to it before being sent back said it had felt like they were going home. Thanks. I'd forgotten that um, there are near-death experiences in that chapter, but it's funny, over the course of... um, the last year or so, um, I found myself reading through archives of these narratives, which um, I think the thread that runs through many of them that has been very compelling to me is the notion that um, love is the animating force of the universe. People who had no sense of that as a vocabulary before these experiences sometimes um, had embraced this perspective. Love is the animating force of the universe, and compassion is what we're here to embody. Um, I think that that's been a really consoling mantra to have in the back of the mind during, you know, an age when that's the opposite of what we hear most of the time. Um, This is a book, um, Wait in the Water, my my book that's coming out this spring, that's kind of wrestling with that question or conundrum. What is it, what would it take to actually love strangers or to love people in a truly generous way. Um, And a lot of the poems are looking back toward history. Um, 
perhaps for examples of the many ways in which we seem consistently to fail um, to, to choose compassion. Um, and then also they're thinking in really um, local terms about you know private experience and the ways that we do and don't regard ourselves and others with that kind of perspective. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. Our featured speaker is Tracy K. Smith. She was appointed the 22nd U.S. Poet Laureate in 2017. She's the author of the critically acclaimed memoir, Ordinary Light, and three books of poetry. She's a professor at Princeton and directs the creative writing program there. Her book, Wade in the Water, is due out this spring. Next, she'll read some of her poetry from the book. Here's Tracy K. Smith. I'm going to read to you from this book, and I'll talk a little bit about where, um, where some of the poems have come from. Um, so there is this um, openness or susceptibility to the sense of like the, the mysterious or the numinous that I think um, runs through all of my, my work regardless of what direction it seems to be pointed in. And that's something I wasn't really aware of um, until more recently. But I'll start with a poem that's really kind of going going there. Um, it's called The Angels. And um, it begins in uh, probably a dream, um, but something that felt really real and maybe helpful. The Angels. Two slung themselves across chairs once in my motel room, grizzled in leather biker gear, emissaries for something I needed to see. I was worn down by an awful panic, a wrenching in the gut, contortions. They sat there at the table while I slept, I could sense them with a deck of playing cards between them. To think of how they smelled, what comes to mind is rum and gasoline. And when they spoke, though I couldn't, I dared not look, I glimpsed how one's teeth were ground down almost to nubs, which makes me hope some might be straight up Thugs, young, slim, raw, who bounce and roll with fearsome grace, whose very voices cause faint souls to quake. Quake then, fools, and fall away. What God do you imagine we obey? Think of the toil we must cost them. One scaled perfectly to eternity. And still they come, telling us through the ages not to fear. Just those two, that once, and never again for me since. Though there are, are there, sightings, flashes, hints. A proud tree in vivid sun. Branches swaying in strong wind. Rain hurling itself at the roof. Boulders, mounds of earth mistaken for dead does. Lions in crouch. 
a rust-stained pipe where a house once stood, which I take each time I pass it for an owl. Bright whirl, so dangerous and near. My mother sat whispering with it at the end of her life, while all the rooms of our house filled up with night. I feel like um, there's a huge part of the sense of, of, you know, love, or I'm going to just call it love, um, that um, for me is pointed toward nature, or that is kind of hoping to receive something like that. Being here has really kind of activated that, the beautiful tall trees. In case you didn't gather from the little prose excerpt that I read, I'm not a skier. Like I, <laughs> so I've been kind of going on the gondolas with my little, little kids and thinking, I'm not down there. But I get to look at all these trees with their, what feels like this abundant wisdom that they have, which is such a beautiful gift. I'll read you a, a couple of poems that are thinking about, um, about the planet, about the environment, um, in, in those kinds of terms. This is a really short poem, Deadly. I tell my students that any time you read a poem that is one sentence long, time is at stake. Like the question at the heart of the poem, whether it's you know voiced overtly or not, has to do with time and wanting to kind of outrun it or stop it. And this is a poem that's thinking in a huge sweep of time in a really short span. Deadly. The holy thinks tiger then watches the thing wriggle, divide, stagger up out of the sea to rise on legs and tear into the side of a loping gazelle, thinks man, and witnesses the armies of trees and every nation of beast and the wide, furious ocean and the epochs of rock Tremble. The world is your beautiful younger sister. I'm going to read the title again because it's it's the it's the governing metaphor here. The world is your beautiful younger sister. Seeing her as seldom as you do. It doesn't change. The ire, the shame, the fists you must remember to smooth flat, just thinking what they did, what they promised then took. Those men who offered to pay, to keep, the clan of them lording it over the others like high school boys and their kid brothers, men with interests to protect and mute marble wives, men who let her beam into their faces, watching her shoulders rise, her astonishing new breasts, making her believe it was she who gave permission. They plundered her youth, then moved on. Those awful, awful men the ones whose wealth is a kind of filth.
This is um, the title poem. There's a little story that goes with it. Um, I was traveling in uh, the Sea Islands in Georgia and South Carolina for a project that I'm working on. And um, a huge part of the marvelous and rich history in, in that part of the country is rooted in you know, the history of slavery as an institution, um, as a philosophy, if you will. Um, and so it's, it's poignant. Um, I'd spent, you know, several days visiting a lot of, you know, places named plantation something, um, and a lot of unmarked sites of some really awful um, reality. And um, on the last night, I went to a ring shout, which is a um, musical but also a spiritual tradition in the African-American community um, that roots back to those days of slavery, but also that has connections to West African traditions. Um, and one of the performers, when I walked into this space, like in the, the lobby, said, I love you, and she gave me a hug. I didn't know her, and I just kind of broke down in gratitude that somebody could offer something like that. Um, and I composed myself and kind of went in. But before I got into the auditorium, I heard her say the same thing to the person behind me, the person behind me. And it didn't, I mean, you would think that would sort of cheapen it, but it didn't. It seemed to get amplified or magnified by that. Um, and so this is a poem that came out of that, this idea that, well, I'll just read the poem. Wade in the water. One of the women greeted me. I love you, she said. She didn't know me, but I believed her. And a terrible new ache rolled over in my chest, like in a room where the drapes have been swept back. I love you. I love you. As she continued down the hall, past other strangers, each feeling pierced suddenly by pillars of heavy light. I love you throughout the performance, in every hand clap, every stomp. I love you in the rusted iron chains someone was made to drag, until love let them be unclasped and left empty in the center of the ring. I love you in the water where they pretended to wade, singing that old blood-deep song that dragged us to those banks and cast us in. I love you, the angles of it scraping at each throat, shouldering past the swirling dust motes in those beams of light that whatever we now knew we could let ourselves feel knew to climb. Oh, woods. Oh, dogs. Oh, tree. Oh, Gun, oh girl, run, oh miraculous many gone, oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord, is this love the trouble you promised? Um, just to, to dwell. Um, a little bit longer in that history. Um, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll read a couple of sections from a poem that um, 
I was invited to think about the Civil War a number of years ago for a photo exhibition at the National Portrait Gallery. And that's not, like, I don't think of that as my conflict. I don't think of it as, I'd never really thought um, about what that war might have felt like from the inside. And I said, okay, I've been working on prose for a long time. I should try and write a poem at this opportunity. And I said, what what perspectives uh, interest me? And I said, if I could find any anything that has to do with the experience of black soldiers um, during that conflict, then I, maybe I can write a poem based on that. So I found a couple of really wonderful books, one that included just many, many letters that um, black servicemen and their families had written to Abraham Lincoln and, you know, back and forth to each other, um, just asking for information about their status, asking for pay, asking for help, and locating members of their family. And then another book contained um, transcriptions of depositions that veterans and their widows and their descendants had given all the way into like the 20s um, in an attempt to get pensions that were due them. But if you think about it, um, slavery meant that a person who was born enslaved wouldn't have a birth certificate, wouldn't get a marriage license. Um, many people chose to change their names after emancipation, so there wasn't this kind of paper trail um, that could make it easy for people to prove their identity. So there was a lot that um, people lost. So this is a poem that ended up just becoming a found poem. I just sort of like curated these voices. And I'm going to read you two brief sections that are just almost like, I think of them as choruses, where many different speakers are speaking. And what I, I hear is a single story. Um, the poem is called, I Will Tell You the Truth About This, I Will Tell You All About It. Excellent sir, my son went in the 54th Regiment. Sir, my husband, who is in Company K, 22nd Regiment, U.S. Colored Troops, and now in the Macon Hospital at Portsmouth with a wound in his arm, has not received any pay since last May, and then only $13. Sir, we, the members of Company D of the 55th Massachusetts Volunteers, call the attention of your excellency to our case. For instant, look and see that we never was freed yet, run right out of slavery, in to soldiery, and we hadn't nothing at all. And our wives and mother, most all of them, is a perishing all about, and we all are perishing ourselves. I am willing to be a soldier and serve my time faithful like a man, but I think it is hard to be put off in such doggish manner as that. Will you see that the colored men fighting now are fairly treated? You ought to do this and do it at once, not let the thing run along, meet it quickly and manfully. We poor oppressed ones appeal to you and ask fair play. So please, if you can do any good for us, do it in the name of God. Excuse my boldness, but please. Your reply will settle the matter and will be appreciated by a colored man who is willing to sacrifice his son in the cause of freedom and humanity. 
I have nothing more to say, hoping that you will lend a listening ear to an humble soldier. I will close yours for Christ's sake. I shall have to send this without a stamp, for I hate money enough to buy a stamp. I am 60-odd years of age. I am 62 years of age next month. I am about 65 years of age. I reckon I am about 67 years old. I am about 68 years of age. I am on the rise of 80 years of age. I am 89 years old. I am 94 years of age. I don't know my exact age. I am the claimant in this case. I have testified before you two different times before. I filed my claim, I think, first about 12 years ago. I am now an applicant for pension because I understand that all soldiers are entitled to a pension. I claim pension under the general law on account of disease of eyes as a result of smallpox contracted in service. The varicose veins came on both my legs soon after the war, and the sores were there when I first put in my claim. I claim pension for rheumatism and got my toe broke, and I was struck in the side with the breech of a gun breaking my ribs. I was a man stout and healthy, over 27 years of age, when I enlisted. When I enlisted, I had a little mustache and some chin whiskers. I was a green boy right off the farm and did just what I was told to do. When I went to enlist, the recruiting officer said to me, your name is John Wilson. I said, no, my name is Robert Harrison, but he put me down as John Wilson. I was known while in service by that name. I cannot read nor write, and I do not know how my name was spelled when I enlisted, nor do I know how it is spelled now. I always signed my name while in the army by making my mark. I know my name by sound. My mother said, after my discharge, that the reason the officer put my name down as John Wilson was he could draw my bounty. I am the son of Solomon and Lucinda Sibley. I am the only living child of Dennis Campbell. My father was George Jordan, and my mother was Millie Jordan. My mother told me that John Barnett was my father. My mother was Mary Eliza Jackson, and my father Reuben Jackson. My name on the roll was Frank Nunn. No, sir, it was not Frank Nern. My full name is Dick Lewis Barnett. I am the applicant for pension on account of having served under the name Lewis Smith, which was the name I wore before the days of slavery were over. My correct name is Hiram Kirkland. Some persons call me Harry, and others call me Henry, but neither is my correct name. Um, I think I'll close with a really another 
really brief, this is like two sentences, so um, this is a poem called The Everlasting Self. But I also, um, I hope we can have a conversation if you have questions. So think of a question while I'm reading this last one. <laughs> the Everlasting Self comes in from a downpour, shaking water in every direction, a collaborative condition, gathered, shed, spread, then forgotten, reabsorbed, like love from a lifetime ago, and mud a dog has tracked across the floor. Thank you. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. How is creativity cultivated in childhood? Does a creative culture at home result in a creative career in adulthood? In our episode, Living the Creative Life, poet Jericho Brown explains his early experience with the written word. You know, I really think I, if I had not found the poets I found when I found them, I could possibly not be here. Like, I really feel like I read poems that sort of led to me not doing bad things to myself. He joins novelists Danny Shapiro and Jess Walter for an intimate conversation about how their early years contributed to a life of writing. Find the show by searching Aspen Ideas To Go in your favorite podcast player, or find more details in our show notes. Next, Tracy K. Smith takes questions from the audience about her life and what makes a poem powerful. So there are people with um, microphones. I'm going to let them determine who will be the first question asker. Um, well, I love your poems, and I, I'm from Northern California, too, so I was wondering where you, you were from. Oh, I grew up in a town yeah. called Fairfield. Oh, Fairfield. Yeah. yeah. We were in um, Marin, but I wanted to ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself. <laughs> That's a nice question to start out with. <laughs> Uh, uh, well, I think a lot of the things that are really truest of me come out in the poems, right? Those kind of the darker questions or the unresolvable matter that um, poetry helps me to wrestle with. Closer to the surface, um, I have three young kids, um, and that's changed my view of everything in the last eight years since I had them. Um, I feel... Uh, so bound for, you know, like I'm in this space with these people on top of me, and in a way, it's one of the most um, life-giving conditions that I could have imagined. As a writer, I feel like um, my sense of um, investment in these lives um, means that my work is asking bigger questions, I think, trying to understand what might we be here for um, maybe even if every poem is making a wish, which I believe it is, um, my wish is I want to give them something that's going to be useful to them in the world that they, you know, kind of have to claim when I'm gone. Um, I think probably a big part of that perspective comes from having lost my own mother at a young age. I feel like I'm preparing uh, for 
you know, what it will be like not to be here anymore. Um, and I'm also playing with Legos and, you know, all that stuff. Um, I live in, in Princeton, New Jersey, and um, I think it's a beautiful place full of quiet, full of trees, full of foxes and deer that more and more are living in the poems. I lived in New York for almost 20 years, and my early poems are city poems. And now there's a, a vastness that I'm kind of searching for, and this other landscape is helping to give me a vocabulary for that. As a, as a former high school English teacher, I tried to show my students the, the love and the power of, of poetry. And I read that you're trying to go to a lot of smaller towns and, and uh, kind of renew, hopefully to renew the enthusiasm for poetry. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so yeah, the project that I've kind of devised or am devising through the Library of Congress is to visit smaller communities that are more remote from uh, cities and universities. And so um, it's a project that's taken a little bit of time to get planning or to get planned, but the first trip that I took uh, earlier this month was to um, an Air Force base in Cannon, uh, Cannon Air Force Base in Corvus, New Mexico, which is a couple of hours outside of Santa Fe. Um, my dad was in the Air Force for many years, and so there was something kind of beautifully nostalgic about going to that community and reading and talking about poems with servicemen and their, their spouses. And um, I was told that servicemen is a gender neutral term. So the, you know, everybody in the service. And um, even to, to learn that there are people who, you know, have notebooks with them and um, are writing poems. I, I was able to record a few people reading some of their original work, um, which kind of affirmed this belief that I have, which is, you know, going out there as Poet Laureate isn't really about bringing poetry to places where it doesn't already live, but saying, you know, what does this conversation sound like between me and you? And what can everyone learn from our two different perspectives coming together? Um, and then I, I visited um, the Santa Fe Indian School in the city of Santa Fe. It's a, a really beautiful school. It was founded by the U.S. government in 1890, back when re-education for Native Americans was the goal. And then in 1920, I think, or 24, um, the leaders of 19 uh, tribal communities outside of Santa Fe petitioned the government to make it an autonomous school and allow them to set the curriculum, which it now is. Um, and so it was really beautiful to talk about poetry um, with students who also are thinking really deeply about language, about their own languages, preserving them, many of which are kind of dwindling or endangered. Um, and then to listen again to poems that students, some of the students were writing. I think it'll be different depending on where I go, but I feel really lucky. Lovely poems. Thank you. Lovely. Uh, could, you, could you say a few words about the gaps, the spaces between words? Um, generally speaking, but could you be specific? about one particular poem uh, and the way you use space. Okay, I like that. Um, I think that, um, I think poetry is language working hard to capture the inarticulable feelings, understandings, reactions that we live with. And that's why poetry, I think, comes up when somebody dies or somebody's getting married or somebody is born. That 
thing that wants to emerge, but is hard-pressed sometimes to find the right words. Poems are, are trying to bridge that gap a little bit, but of course there's always that space, because um, language is only language. Um, so I think there's this sense of um, space built into every poem, something that's unbre unbreachable. Um, I also, though, am really interested in all the amazing feelings and associations that language can create. I think poems urge you to think quickly and to, to move deeply from one place and then lift off from that place and go to another place that's not connected in literal or linear terms. And that distance is a kind of silence. And there's a, a feeling that lives there. Poems gather that feeling up. And so you, you encounter it many, many times. Um, I'll read you a poem of mine that is thinking about mining that a little bit deliberately. It's a poem called Ash. Um, I'm going to have to find it. Um, and it is the metaphor that comes up again and again is a house. It's not a poem about houses. Um, and so I'm, I'm asking that space to do some work. And I'm asking maybe each place the poem lands in language to be a point that can be felt and then abandoned. Ash. Strange house we must keep and fill. House that eats and pleads and kills. House on legs. House on fire. House infested with desire. Haunted house. Lonely house. House of trick and suck and shrug. Give it to me, house. I need you, baby, house. House whose rooms are pooled with blood. House with hands. House of guilt. House that other houses built. House of lies and pride and bone. House afraid to be alone. House like an engine that churns and stalls. House with skin and hair for walls. House the seasons singe and douse. House that believes it is not a house. And in that poem, I feel uh, a few things kind of like driving. One is that kind of... Um, Storybook rhyme, that really simple rhyme, fills, kills, um, shrug, um, whatever. The, um, and then there's this kind of like rhythmic engine. Um, and what I think, as a poet I was listening to and kind of allowing this poem to unfold, was like um, the things that happen when those sounds aren't, aren't happening. Um, and... Uh, so the, there's even a lot of like space between the lines where maybe I want you to kind of like dwell a little bit as you gather this strange sense of what, what's being considered. Um, thanks for that question. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we have time for um, two, two or three more questions, I think. So this kind of goes with the past question where you're talking about the meaning of poetry, but over the past couple of years I've noticed a rise of Instagram poets with poems that are usually pretty short and you can kind of 
get them as you scroll through, and you don't have to spend as long connecting. So thinking about well, that gentleman's question about how we as a country connect, and then where you're talking about connecting to different spaces, um, both as a university professor and as our poet laureate, what does that mean for us as a country? Um, <laughs> nice. Um, I think, you know, my real wish is that um, what, whatever the source, um, that language, thoughtful and courageous language is something that can turn us inward a little bit. So if there's a, a poem on Instagram that's coming from a real place and that's speaking um, in useful terms for someone to what it feels like to be alive, um, and that's something that person can, can use as an excuse to sort of slow down, maybe like close the browser for a minute, <laughs> and just kind of like think, what does it feel like to be here? Then I think that's really wonderful. Um, when you talk about really short poems, I think you know every poem is full of like really short things that can live with you forever. Um, even detached from their context, there are little views of the world or, or phrases that capture a sense of thought or feeling that kind of don't go away once you've read them. I every I don't know why sometimes it's when I'm on escalators, but there's a poem. Um, there's a poem by the poet Thomas James who died about 40 years ago. Um, and it's a poem about a mummy, a, a young girl who's narrating what it feels like to be mummified. And she says, I was so important. And they, you know, they did all of these things. But then at the end of the poem, you know, obviously she's dead, something has happened. And so the last line of the poem swerves away from this narrative of being made immortal. And she asks, why do people lie to one another? And something, you know, that, that's a question that, that pops up at strange times. And I think, you know, my, my lifetime of reading poems has given me thousands of those little moments that are useful um, in unexpected occasions. And I hope that Instagram, uh, if that's the source, is giving that to people. I know books can do that too. So my mission is to get out there with books, not not just my own, and say these are these are some of the voices that you can live with forever. Which is really just a way of saying voices that can help you listen to yourself better. Okay. Thank you very much. Tracy K. Smith is the U.S. Poet Laureate. She's spoke in Aspen, Colorado as part of a lecture series called Winter Words. It's held by Aspen Words, a literary program of the Aspen Institute. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Follow Aspen Words year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Words. The Aspen Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Words team is Adrian Brodror, Jamie Kravitz, Carolyn Torrey, Elizabeth Nix, Marie Chan, and Ellie Scott. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.